This morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But, I, but now I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we come upon a difficult passage of Scripture this morning. And Lord, we just pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight, give us understanding of Paul's words and the meaning behind them, Father, as we gather together as your church this morning, seeking to do your will in all things and glorifying you. And Lord, I pray the words that I speak be not of my own volition, but be according to your will in accordance with your Spirit. And you be glorified through that, for it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as you have seen by the reading, we are moving into this fifth chapter of the book of Corinthians. And it is a difficult chapter. I said that last week. It, it makes us all a little uncomfortable. As the title suggests, this passage gives us instruction on dealing with immorality in the church. And no one wants to be the morality police, right? That, that, I, I don't think that anyone desires for that to happen. As I said last week, part of our hesitation with this is we look back in our own past and we see how fallen and sinful we have been in our own past. But I encourage us that Christ has forgiven us of those past. It is now the present. And so what we do now moving forward is what is important and quite honestly, we don't want to be hypocrites, right? I, I, I don't think any person, believer, unbeliever alike, enjoys hypocrisy. We don't want to thrust our brand of morality on other people. I think we can take a lot of guidance from the passage we looked, for, looked to a few weeks ago when Paul encouraged and instructed the Corinthians, don't look beyond what is written. Don't deviate from the word of God because there's danger in that. 
Because then you can get into, well, I think this is right, or I think that is right, or this is wrong, is that is wrong. And then it just comes down to the whims of men and women, right? But as long as we stand strong with the Word of God as our instruction book, I don't think that we can go wrong with that. And that's what Paul encourages us to do. I want to make clear this morning that I'm as uncomfortable with this as any of you may be. I don't find myself to be any better than anyone else in any way. I'm not trying to make people conform to what my belief of right or wrong is. And I want that to be clear. When I agreed to lead this church some nine years ago, I committed myself to preaching and teaching God's Word. Regardless of how uncomfortable it makes me or how uncomfortable it makes us, as a church and even though I may want to avoid part of it and my flesh cries out not to speak about it I simply cannot do that and wake up to God each and every day now I suppose as we look at Paul's teachings here in this fifth chapter we can see them as being unkind or unloving in some way but as we're going to find out At the close of this, that's not correct at all. And as I alluded last week, we can see it as unloving and unkind if this world is all there is. If all we're doing is living this world and we have no belief that there is an eternity awaiting for us, then I can see how that would work. But it doesn't work if we have the deep-seated knowledge that there is an afterlife and that eternity is way more important than anything we feel or unkind or unjust or not fair in this life. And I think that's the proper perspective. I think that gets me beyond that uncomfortable feeling of this type of situation. If we believe that God's word is is a tiny, or, or this life is a tiny tributary to this amazing gulf ocean of life that awaits then we understand that the the things we endure here really don't make that much difference because life is fast. Life is rapid. We are here but a vapor, as James tells us. But regardless of our view, it still doesn't make it easy. It's still difficult to deal with these situations. But we remember always, as I said last week, that these types of situations have an eye that always looks for repentance. Always. Any type of church action, whether it be discipline, we're always looking at the end goal of repentance. And that is the hope that Paul goes into this. And it should be the hope that we go into it as well. So let's open up this fifth chapter. So it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So here we have the situation. Paul said, it is actually reported, be now, it's going on, it is happening now as I'm writing to you, that there's some sort of sexual immorality going on. It wasn't the case that it had happened in the past and they had repented and moved forward. That wasn't the case at all. It was going on in the church at the time Paul was writing about it. Then he goes on to say that 
it is of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Even unbelievers don't tolerate this type of activity. And he says that a man has his father's wife. For a man has his father's wife. Now, that was unlawful in the Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere. But Paul says it's such a situation and so wrong that even unbelievers don't think it's right. People that don't even believe in God think that this is improper. And if you look at this situation, you can reference it back to Leviticus 18. And God deals with incest in Leviticus 18. Verses 6 through 9. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether they brought up in the family or in another home. So we have a lot of scenarios here in Leviticus. And they're unraveling these scenarios to deal with incestual type activities. And if you recall, there was a nakedness in the Bible that happened before this, and it's a little confusing and hard to deal with. Anyone remember what that was? Noah? Somebody said Noah, you're right. It was Ham and Noah, right? So Ham went in, and there Noah was, and we have the nakedness of Noah. Exactly what that consisted of, I'm not going to go into a deep study today, but I will tell you this, I think the, the language is quite different because Ham saw the nakedness of Noah and did not uncover the nakedness of Noah. So I think there's an important distinction there. That's, I'm not going to chase that squirrel, but I just wanted to add that because it's very, or it comes to my mind whenever I read this. But he says here, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. So clearly, he says, refers to one being your mother, And then he refers to another person being your father's wife. Now, there's some debate on who this gentleman is living with or having relations with that's in the church at Corinth. Some would say it's his mother. Some would say it's his stepmother. I believe it's his stepmother because of this. If you look at the way that they speak of this from Leviticus, you should not uncover the nakedness of your mom, your mother. Clearly, they set that out. And then in verse 8... He changes it up. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Different people, and I think that's why it's referenced in Corinthians the way that it is. Still sick and twisted, right? Don't get me wrong. But I don't believe that it is this gentleman's mom for this very reason. So let's jump back then to chapter 5. So it says, even the pagans believe this activity is wrong, clearly It was wrong for the children of God due to that Old Testament law that I just read to you all. So we're going to see now, he's saying there's something going on, there's sexual immorality in the church, not even the pagans tolerate this activity, and for a man has his father's wife. So he explains to us really what's going on, but then we're going to jump and see what the church is doing about it. And you, 
the church at Corinth, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So Paul accuses the church of being arrogant, of being puffed up. We've seen him do that multiple times throughout these studies. So a man has his stepmother or is living with his stepmother and the church is being arrogant. It's a little hard to understand exactly what Paul's trying to tell us here, or it was for me anyway. But I think he gives us a hint in the next sentence. Ought you not rather mourn? So he's making a contrast here, right? Arrogance and mourning. So let's, let, let's take to mourn. I think everyone knows what that word means. And let's look at the opposite of that. What would be the opposite of to mourn? To celebrate? To rejoice? I think that would be a proper contra- contrast. So you should be mourning, but instead you are celebrating or rejoicing. But there still remains a little bit of obscurity as to this notion of arrogance. There's still a disconnect in my mind between arrogance and rejoicing. So let's go back and let's, let's recap what's going on at the church in Corinth. They had taken the name of Jesus. They claimed to be believers. And we talked about this at the beginning. Yet they were still worldly in every way. They were so full of pride and arrogance as we've seen many times. They would cause divisions between each other based on what teacher they thought was best. They wanted to be rich. They thought they were kings. You remember the, the irony that Paul gave out to them. There was no shame. We talked about shame last week. There were things going on in the church that they should have been ashamed of, but they were not. They were not. There was no sense of shame. And and that sense of shamelessness was flowing over into the situation between the man and his stepmother. So we can kind of see what that church was like and the problems that were going on in that church. But let's also give them a little benefit of the doubt in that they knew Paul's theological teaching. And they knew what grace was. And grace is a beautiful, marvelous thing that I can't fully understand. But they at least had a superficial understanding of God's grace. And they knew that they weren't saved based on what they did. Okay? They knew that they were saved based on what Jesus did. But there's pitfalls when we tend to wallow in grace... And then do away with all responsibility or behavior in our minds that how we should act a certain way. There are dangers in that. It can lead us to the belief in what's called antinomianism. Antinomianism is just what I explained. We believe that we're saved by grace, only by grace. Just true. I believe that wholeheartedly. We believe that God saves us and we don't save ourselves. I believe that wholeheartedly. But then we take the next step. And so, so what does that lead us to believe wrongly? That I can do absolutely anything that I want with respect to sin and that's not going to change. That's a wrong-headed view of God's grace. 
Paul addressed it, if you remember, when we were in Romans 5. He said, so what do we do? Continue in sin that grace may, be ab- may abound no more, or even more? And his answer was, God forbid, may it never be. May it never be that I have a desire to continue sinning that God's just going to keep covering up that sin because I'm doing whatever I want. It, it leads us to the understanding is I don't really have a good relationship with God, that I don't really cherish him, that my sin's way more important than any type of submission that I want to do from God. And so there is a danger in that. Let's look at that a little bit more. We are under the new covenant, right? And we see that in Ezekiel. We've actually gone through it in this church multiple times. And that new covenant says that we're not required to keep laws to be saved, right? Amen. Praise God for that. Jesus did that for us. But what did God tell us he was going to do whenever we begin in this new covenant he said i'm going to take something out right he said i'm going to take out that heart of what stone and i'm going to put in a heart of what flesh what am i going to write on that heart of flesh his law his law if we can do any sinful activities we want and not ever worry about anything, why would he go to the extent of writing on our hearts of flesh his law? That was a dynamic waste of his time. The new covenant is all about me loving and cherishing God and wanting to do what he wants me to do out of that love relationship. Being submissive to God. To work so that that my heart of flesh loves Him way more than it loves sin. So He replaced that heart of stone so that we would be freed from sin. We shouldn't want or desire to go back into it. That sin may abound all the more. How can he who has been freed from sin go back and become a slave yet again unto it? Was the question in Romans. Now we go back to that original question of Paul's use of the term arrogant. And I hope that I've I've hit something there that will help us to understand the arrogance of it. I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever the heck I want to. If I want to bring my father's wife and sit on the front seat pew of the church, so be it has nothing to do with my salvation right that's the arrogance that paul's getting at in this church at corinth that's why he says you should be mourning it's a sad time we should be mourning that that's the situation so they were attempting to use god's grace as a license for their sin and and they're missing the entire point Instead of mourning over and praying over the sin, they are celebrating it very arrogantly. And then Paul tells them what they're supposed to do with this person, right? Remove him from among you. Excommunicate him. Now we have to be careful here. We have to be very careful here. We don't want unbelieving sinners to be kicked out the doors. 
We want unbelieving sinners among us so they can hear the gospel message and they can accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved. That's the whole point. Paul's going to elaborate on that in just a little bit. Jesus said, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Hospitals aren't built for the healthy, right? Hospitals aren't built for those who feel great. But I will also say this. Hospitals are ran, run by the healthy. They're not run by those who are sick those who are carrying diseases and illnesses with him. So it appears that this man was a member of the church. He was a believer. And he was actively participating in the church at this time. And we're about to see, and we're actually going to see this in the the passage that's coming up. And I will submit to you that's exactly why Paul told them to remove him. Paul would have never have told the church to remove him had he been an unbeliever that was addicted or had some sort of sinful problem, was an alcoholic or whatever, was a greedy, greedy person or swindler or idolater, you name it. He would have never have told them to remove him. It was only because of his relationship with the church that he told them to remove him. To remove him. He had confessed Christ as his Lord and Savior, and yet he was carrying on and embracing a sinful lifestyle with no sense of shame and no eye toward repentance. So, what about those sins after we're saved? Who here doesn't sin? Nobody. We all do, right? I mean, that, that, that's part and par- parcel, unfortunately, of who we are. Even Paul, in Romans... Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You recall that statement? So what's the difference? Even though we are Christians, we still sin? I think it's key to ask ourselves, do we mourn our sin or do we celebrate and embrace our sin? We've gone down this road many times, and we've talked about this over and over. There is a battle, and that's part of life. And if you are a Christian, you battle each and every day. You get up, you know the the sinful snares that will entangle us so easily, and we fight that. But you look at this man that sat with his father's wife and was living with his father's wife, and there was no battle. It was, yeah, it's just them. There was no intimation that what he was doing was wrong at all. There was no fight. That's the difference. And it's a critical difference. Is there a fight? Do I sin? Yes. Do I do some of the stupid crap that I did 30 years ago? Unfortunately, yes. Do I celebrate it and lift it up and enjoy it? No! As children of God, we should recognize our sins and fight them every single day. Not to be saved, but because we love God. Because He called us according to His perfect purpose. 
Verse 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So I think it was last week or the week before he was talking about how there were those who were saying, where is Paul? Paul's not even here. He's not even coming back to see us. And so he's admitting the fact that I wasn't there. I'm not there, but but I've heard about this. I don't have to be there to understand what's going on and to tell you what you should be doing in this situation. He's present in spirit. They share the same spirit. He pronounces judgment on this man who is with his stepmother. He's heard, quite frankly, all he needs to hear on this matter. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are, to deliver, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul gives them direction now on what they're supposed to do. He tells them how they're supposed to go about dealing with this man. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What exactly does Paul mean by this? excommunicate him, kick him out of the church so that Satan will destroy his flesh. There are two biblical examples of this that come to mind. They're not perfect, but they do come to mind. Being delivered to Satan. You remember Job? You remember the, the conversation that went on between God and Satan? And he said, how about my servant Job? And so he said, you can do anything you want to him, just don't take his life. And there was a lot that went on with Job, right? He lost everything that he had, including his health. All of his family, all of his kids, everything that he owned, everything that he had. And we look at that and we think, man, I don't want to even think about what Job had to deal with. But there's something more important than what Job lost. That's eternity. Was Job a more godly man at the end of all that than he was before? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was it pleasant for Job at the time? No. Absolutely not. The other example I have on my mind is Peter. When he's talking to Jesus before he was arrested. Peter's boasting about what a wonderful disciple that he is. And Jesus turns to him and said, This very night Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, and when you have returned, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. When you have returned, strengthen your brethren. And so we all know what happened to Peter. God allows Satan to do things to us, to strengthen us, and bring us to a place that we weren't in the beginning. And it's not pleasant. It doesn't seem very enjoyable. We talked about and looked at Hebrews 12 last week, right? And we talked about the chasing of God. We said, how does that happen? How does God chasing us? Does he just call down fire from heaven and burn up everything around us? Or is it done some other way? And I encourage us to think about how God saves us. Does he just wave his hand over us and boom, we're saved? Well, he does some things we can't see internally through his Holy Spirit, but he saves us through each other, right? He saves us by sharing, by, 
by leading us to share the gospel with each other, by hearing the gospel. He does it through our hands. And I submitted to you last week that many times God is wanting us to be chastened in the same way, by and through each other's hands. Now we get to the second part of verse 5. Why does he say, why does he say, excommunicate this guy, kick him out, turn him over to Satan? What's the point? What is he wanting to happen in this situation? It's the last part of verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The, the point of all of this is for salvation of the guy that's living with his stepmom. That's the entire point of it. So that he will make it in the end. A true Christian comes home. If you really loved God and you really loved the fellowship of his church and you're given that option to hit the door or come back, the truth of our heart shines through. Eventually. It may not immediately, but it eventually shines through. So he's essentially saying that through the destruction of the flesh by Satan, whatever Satan does in the life of this man that's living with his stepmom, hopefully will end up in him rejoining the congregation, him repenting and coming back. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. Ergo, what I was just talking about when he's saying, if this guy had just come in from the street and been a non-believer, he wouldn't have kicked him out. He's saying it's those that are in there that, that claim to be Christians. Since you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, other believers, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkler, drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not the inside of the church, inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you so as we go back we see here in verse 9 paul says i wrote to you in my letter again it's this is a side issue but it's interesting this is first corinthians right this is the first letter to the church at corinth and yet here he says i've already written to you so i don't think that this is the first step I think that this gentleman's probably been approached before and this situation's probably attempted to be dealt with in a different way than what it was. I don't think Paul just hears about it and then all of a sudden he's out and that's it. Nobody ever says anything to him. I think the issue has come up before and I think it probably came up in this letter that's never been found. Obviously, God didn't want anybody else to find it, but there was a prior letter. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. But I, I don't think that the, the original, or that this was the original attempt to get this gentleman to come to his senses and, and repent. <clears throat> so, 
Paul tells the church that they have to police themselves. That they have to police themselves. And in doing so, if, you, if we don't do that, then what happens? He says, do you all know that a little leaven leavens it up? The whole loaf. So he's saying, if the church doesn't police itself and keep itself pure, then we actually degrade what Christ did. We tarnish the bride of Christ. And he instructs the church to do this so that the sinning brother might see the destructions of their actions and repent. God has given a great deal of authority to the church. If you look back, I think it's Matthew 16, when he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gives the authority to the church to do this sort of thing, to help it remain pure, to help bring others to repentance. And it seems wrongheaded, and it seems painful, and it seems difficult, and it is. I'm not going to lie. We read Paul's words and we, we, we think that Paul's just writing them and he doesn't feel any emotion in it at all, that he's just basically saying, kick them out, end of story, move on. With that in mind, we'll turn to 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. As I close this, Paul's writing them again. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you for if I cause you pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained and I wrote as I did so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice for I felt sure of all of all of you that my joy would be joy of all of you all for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish in my heart with many tears not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love I have for you and you're going to see that he's talking about this fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians that we're dealing with we read it and we see it and we think you're just harsh and callous Paul but he says I wrote to you out of affliction and anguish in my heart and out of many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know how much I love you. You think Paul wanted to write that 1 Corinthians passage? No. He didn't want to write it no more than I want to preach about it. But he says he does it out of the love that I have for you. And he says, if anyone's caused the pain, he... He caused it, not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And now we're going to see it. Beautiful, beautiful change in tenor. So he tells him how much he loved him, how much he really didn't want to write that. But he, that was what he had to do, and it's what they had to do. And now he jumps into verse 6. For such a one, the punishment by the majority, they voted to excommunicate him by a majority. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. He came back. He repented. It worked. It was full of pain, sorrow, and grief, and anguish, and everything in it. But whenever given the difference and he was turned over to Satan, he came back. Now Paul's telling the rest of the church, hey, it's in his past. Don't continue to hold it over him. He's repented. He's been forgiven. He's clean. Move forward. If you continue holding this over his head, it's going to cause bad things in his life and his relationship with Christ. What a beautiful picture. What a hard picture. But as I said in the beginning, that's, this is always the goal, right? That they come back. That they love God more than they love sin. It's always the goal. And when they come back, love them. Love them always. But show them how much love you have for them. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this difficult passage in 1 Corinthians. Lord, and we see, as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians, how difficult it was for him to write this, how difficult it was for him to share those words with the church regarding another brother. But Lord, we see the beauty in you fulfilling what you asked Paul to do and you being faithful in that. And Lord, as we grapple with it ourselves, Father, we just pray that we always remember that the goal is repentance. And Father, help us to be self-policing, that we don't tarnish your beautiful bride, that we work to make sure that she remains as clean as we possibly can have her, Father, so that she is ready when Christ returns for her. Lord, we just give you all glory and thanks. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, join together, sing the closing.